Fear not, or have no fear, is one of the most persistently and consistently repeated commands, exhortations, and or encouragements throughout Scripture. It's a rather difficult and daunting task, however, to say the least, especially given the fact that each and every single one of us here in this auditorium, in this sanctuary this morning, is prone to fear in some way, some shape, or some form. Every single one of us can and do, given the right circumstances, given the right stressors, exhibit either great feats of courage and fearlessness in one situation only to be vanquished by fear and overcome by terror and alarm and panic in another. For example, for example, some of you in here might be crazy enough to want to go skydiving. And you might have all of the courage in the world to jump out of a plane that is flying at 10,000 feet. I don't know if that's how high it flies, maybe less. But you'll jump out of a plane, however, you will turn pale and anxious at the thought of crawling into some enclosed space. Some of you in here, perhaps our resident law enforcement officers, for example, might have no fear when running towards danger or diffusing tense situations or helping to rescue someone from something horrendous and difficult. But should a mouse or a spider, or some sort of creepy crawly, run across your toes, you might let out a high-pitched scream and call for help from somebody to get you out from these terrifying little monsters. I can remember being younger when my wife and I were first dating, and we used to work at a youth outreach organization, and they had this event where they would go to these caves, and you could go right down to the end of these caves... They were underground, and I had not really come to grips with whether or not I was afraid of small spaces. It's just something I had never figured out about myself. And so we got to these caves, and I said, hey, I'm going to go in first. I will lead the way. I will lead the path. And I jumped into this hole, and then all of these kids, not kids, but like teenagers, jumped in right after me, and it was at that moment that I realized, I don't like this. And as the kids piled in, the teens just piled in and piled in and piled in, I thought I I, I lost, kind of lost some composure and I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out quickly. I wanted to get out right now. And all of a sudden, my elbows started flailing and my feet started kicking and I was hitting kids and moving people and I just, I, I lost control of myself as I tried to get out of this hole in the ground. Until, until... One of my coworkers grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me straight in the eye and said, Gino, calm down. Calm down. And fear led me to do all sorts of weird things while we were in that hole. And all the kids had to get out. All the teens had to get out so that I could get out so that they could courageously go in and find their, plumb their way down to the bottom of this cave. I learned something about myself. Given the right stressors, I can hurt people. the same with you. A lot of us will hear, will think, I'm not afraid. I don't have any fear. But you do. And given the right stressors, you too might throw a fist up or might throw a foot out. You too might hurt people. And so here, 
Although these aren't quite the fears that Jesus is speaking about in our text this morning, he's not speaking about mice and small spaces and jumping out of planes. He did instruct his disciples on this day during this discourse to have no fear. To have no fear of anything. Have no fear about what is going on in this world. You are children of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you have to fear if you are in his hand? Nothing. It doesn't matter what the world is doing, what the world is trying to force you to do, what the world is saying. You, the hairs on your head are numbered by your Lord. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without the Lord's permission. Do you really think that anything can come across your path that the Lord hasn't ordained or set there for you? And if that's the case, have no fear. And in speaking these words to the disciples on this day, saying, have no fear, Jesus is simply reiterating an encouragement, an exhortation, and a command that the Lord has consistently spoken to all of his people throughout the entirety of biblical history. For example, when it came time for Israel to take possession of the land of Canaan, you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the people who were standing on the border of the promised land on that day of their previous failure because they were afraid. Failures that were brought on by fear. You remember, right? A number of Israelites had been sent to spy out the land of Canaan and come back with a report. A couple of those guys, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a positive report. The Lord is with us. We got this. We can go and do this. Don't be afraid of them. We can go. While the others came back, saying in Deuteronomy 1.28, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the Anakim there. In other words, the people came back and they said, we are afraid The people in the city are taller than we are. The walls of the city are thick. Who is God and how can God protect us from that? And Moses tried to encourage the people. He tried to help them see there is no need to fear. There's no need to fear the people in the land because the Lord is on your side. And in Deuteronomy 1, verse 30, Moses said this to them, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. This is the same Lord, Israelites, This is the same Lord who parted the Red Sea so that you could cross through it. This is the same Lord who took out the entire Egyptian army for you without you ever having to raise a weapon. It's the same Lord. Why are you afraid? But the Israelites, gripped with fear rather than trust in the Lord, didn't believe Moses, and they rebelled against the command of the Lord, murmuring in their tents even going so far as to malign the care and the provision of the Lord, saying these words in Deuteronomy 1.26. 
Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt and to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. And the Lord's response to this rebellious fear, to this lack of trust, to this denial of the Lord's name and power was his anger. And the Lord pledged in Deuteronomy 1 that not one of these men, these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb and Joshua, except for the two who trusted in my name. And now, as Israel's standing on the borders of the land and the previous generation has passed away, they are once again poised to enter in. And the Lord again spoke through Moses, saying this to the people, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. The people of Israel who lacked trust in the Lord, but rather feared those who might possibly kill the body, ended up reaping the wrath of the Lord instead. And this exhortation to not fear is repeated throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In 3.22, for example, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. In 20, verse 1, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army that is larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And in chapter 31, verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You hear it over and over and over again. Do not fear or be dismayed. And it's not just the Israelites at the border of the promised land, but it's also David throughout the Psalms. He's consistently reminding himself not to be afraid because the Lord is with him no matter what is going on in his life. As he said in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in Psalm 27, David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises against me, yet I will be confident. And again, in Psalm 56, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That's a good question, isn't it? What can flesh do to you? Do you hear the promises of the Lord to his people Israel and the promises of the Lord to his servant David? 
You and I don't need to fight. We don't need to be afraid. But instead, we must trust in and be confident in the rod and the staff of the Lord who leads us. The Lord, our God, who fights for us, who goes ahead of us, who makes our enemies stumble and fall. So why fear? Why fear? What can flesh do to you? And no matter what it is that humanity can actually do to you, it doesn't mean anything. It is a mere trifle in the grand scheme of things. And even after Israel was taken into exile as punishment for her rebellion and her idolatry, the Lord still exhorted Israel as she lived among a brutal nation. He still loved Israel, the apple of his eye, and said to her, don't fear. Because even when you are in exile, even when you are going through this terrible time where there are people inciting violence against you, his love would continue and he would continue caring for them. And he said to the Israelites with an anxious heart in Isaiah, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And even as they lived among the Babylonians in exile, as they resided with a people who specifically set their faces against Israel, against those who remained faithful to the Lord, the Lord comforted his people, saying, again, in Isaiah chapter 41, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I... The Lord, your God, holds your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. And as the Lord commissioned Jeremiah to his role of prophet to the nations, he encouraged Jeremiah right from the outset of his ministry in chapter 1, verse 8. All to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And it's not just in the Old Testament, too. We see it in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul being escorted to Rome in chains for his preaching and faithfulness to the gospel had an angel appear to him and encourage him, saying this in Acts 27, 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And the writer of the Hebrews also encouraged his readers, saying in Hebrews 13, 6, We... The children of God, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And finally, Peter, writing to Christians dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, calling them elect exiles, encouraged them, and he encourages us, saying this, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So can you see 
Throughout Scripture, the Word of God consistently appeals to you and consistently appeals to me, consistently appeals to anyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Avoid fear. Have no fear. Do not fear. Instead, trust in the Lord. And this is an appeal that Jesus reiterated to the disciples who have heard him speak on this day. Jesus has told them everything that they can expect as they go out with, on gospel mission, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel on this occasion. And Jesus has just told them that I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, meaning your labors will be dangerous. Sheep are not safe in the presence of wolves. So disciples of Christ proclaiming and heralding the good news of salvation to the people will be met with persecution, said Jesus. As rebellious and stubborn people will deliver them and you over to the courts to have you flogged in their synagogues. Wolves who reject the offer of salvation held out to them by faithful witnesses will drag Christ's sheep before governors and kings on account of their allegiance to Jesus. However, Jesus said, don't fear. Have no fear when you are brought before those governors and kings. Have no fear when you are flogged in the synagogues. Instead, bear witness to me. Bear witness to them about me. Don't be anxious about what you will speak because the Holy Spirit will be with you to give you the words that you need to speak in that hour of testimony. For my sake, Jesus said to the disciples, you will be rejected. You will be hated. You will even perhaps be offered up to death. And not simply by humanity in general, but maybe, perhaps, even by those who are closest to you. Perhaps even by those who live in the very same house as you. And you can envision the disciples listening to Jesus on this day, right? You can envision them wondering to themselves, this does not sound like fun. This is, is this what we are signing up for? Hardship and slander, and maybe death. See, I was hoping that by coming to you, Jesus, that I would get some sort of ease and honor, maybe a little bit of prestige in the world, because, you know, you're Messiah. And people following Messiah, I've been historically told, will have some level of honor. But you're telling us, Jesus, that this missionary labor you're sending us out on will be demanding and grueling and wearisome, And it may be that Jesus noted a level of discouragement in the faces of his disciples this morning, or the, on this day, which led to this section of encouragement for the disciples on mission. As if Jesus looked at them and said, yes, this is going to be difficult. Yes, you will be like sheep among wolves. Yes, you will experience trials from governments, trials from society, family, and the rest. However, have no fear. Why? Number one, look at verse 24 and 25 again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So this text here of Matthew 10 begs a rather obvious question for you here this morning. 
Do you really want to serve Christ? Do you really want to be like Christ? I mean, and when I ask that, I mean, I mean really. Do you want to serve and obey the risen Lord Jesus? Because there are some uncomfortable worldly consequences that are part and parcel of your decision to do so. For many, the assumption is that we can follow and obey the much slandered, much defamed, much vilified, and ultimately crucified Savior, all the while expecting to be free of such consequences, expecting to fare better than Jesus did. And if that's you, if that's what you've been taught, listen here to the clear words of your Lord. If the world treated Jesus in this way, look again at verse 26, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, did you catch that? How much more? See, your identity as a follower of Christ and the response of the world to you as a follower of Christ is directly linked to, you guessed it, Christ. The servant of Jesus can expect to receive similar and perhaps even worse treatment than the master. And our Lord Jesus, look at what he said. He was called Beelzebul by those to whom he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Is there a more grave insult than to be called Beelzebul? No, because Beelzebul was and is a title for Satan himself. The point being that even though throughout the history of the world no one loved people more than Christ, no one expressed and acted with as much compassion toward people as Christ, even though no one spoke the truth more clearly and more graciously than Christ, they still called him the devil. Even though Christ was sinless and perfect, he endured hatred, derision, scorn, insult, and even more. He was slandered. He was called a promoter of evil. He was spoken of as evil. He was called a teacher of foul and wicked things. And, and a look at the early church reveals that this reputation passed on to the disciples as well. The early church and the disciples were spoken of and slandered by those in the Roman Empire as people who promoted culturally backward and destructive teaching. Roman opponents rallied the people of Rome against the Christians by using defamatory claims like, Christians worship a criminal. You can't have some religion like that floating around within the empire, can you? You don't want people worshiping criminals, do you? Or they would say, Christians are not true patriots because they obey the teachings of this criminal over and above the Roman laws and customs. You can't let people like that roam free. They even went so far as to paint the Christian practice of the Lord's Supper as a cannibalistic feast. And they would spread rumors amongst the people that when the Christians gathered in the dark, they would really eat human flesh and eat real, drink real human blood. How could such people be a good influence on society? Any wonder the early Christians were running for their lives for the first three centuries of their existence. But these early Christians generally had no fear. 
They knew that if they had treated, if the Romans treated their master, if the Jews treated their master in such ways, that they would also treat the servants similarly. And the same reality is true for us today as well. If they called your Savior the devil, how much more will they malign you for boldly and courageously obeying the call to go out into the world and proclaim repentance and faith in him for salvation? I mean, you know it, right? You all know what can and perhaps will happen to you when you call out to the world, turn from your sin. And then you proceed to actually name that sin that needs to be repented of. And then you call the people in the world to an exclusive faith and submission to Jesus, the only name given under heaven by which men and women might be saved. But have no fear. In the same way the Lord was with David, the Lord was with Israel, the Lord was with Jeremiah, the Lord was with Paul, the Lord was with his disciples, he is with you. And that is the encouragement that he gives us at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, verse 20, when he said to the disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So realize this, you, if you want to be like Jesus... If you want to obey the call of Jesus, you, as a herald of the gospel, bringing the saving message of Jesus to the world, as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus in this world, as one through whom God makes his appeal appeal to humanity to be saved and to be reconciled to him by grace through faith in Christ, you will, you will experience the smears and the defamations and the libel But I want you to hear me clearly right now. This in no way, shape, or form makes you a victim. You see, our world has this obsession with being a victim. The biggest sympathy card that anyone can play in our culture is how big of a victim can I be? This is how you get the attention of the world that you live in. That's how the world seeks attention. But you... Think about what that does to our witness when you play the victim rather than the victor in Christ. You are not a victim. No matter what the world does to us, no matter what the world says about us, no matter what happens to us, you and I are victors in Jesus. Sent to the world with the gospel, expecting to meet resistance. When you don't meet resistance, it's one of two things. A blessing from the Lord that is temporary or your disobedience. We are not victims. Don't play the victim. Don't cry out about how everyone's against you. Instead, be like the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, in one of the greatest examples to us, after the apostles had been brought into the Jewish synagogue and beaten for the sake of their proclamation of the gospel, the text tells us, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, they left. How many of us rejoice because we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? We are those for whom living is Christ and dying is gain. We are those for, to whom a great many precious promises have been made by our master. 
We are those for whom the most wonderful heavenly rewards await. We are those for whom, as one of you said at last week's church picnic, recognizes that the rewards of Christ will be so grand that had we known, we would have endured all of the trials and all of the sufferings and all of the slanders and all of the torments ten times over. Do not fear because your master was treated in a certain manner and you can expect also to be treated in a certain manner if you obey and live like him. That's number one. Number two, Jesus continued in in verse 26, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Have no fear. Don't be afraid or anxious or apprehensive about what you will face from, and look at the term, them, on account of your devotion to Christ. The them in, in, uh, in question here are the wolves among whom you live as sheep. Instead of fearing them or worrying, Christ encourages his disciples to look forward in faith and patience to that final day. In this present time, if you are vilified, if you are misrepresented, if they lay hands on you and drag you before the courts or flog you, have no fear. Do not stop. Endure. Keep working. Keep ministering. Continue declaring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world, all the while knowing that there is coming a day. A day when sin and evil will be exposed for what it is. When all of the slanders you endured, when all of the maligning that came your way will be cleared up by the Lord and you will be vindicated. There is coming a day when the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of our God will be shown with the utmost clarity to the entire world and you will be recognized as one who labored for him. There is coming a day when you, obedient, Christ-serving Christian, will be, much to the world's chagrin, revealed as having been on the right side of history this whole time. There is coming a day when faithful followers of Christ who have been wrongfully convicted and wrongfully accused, Christians who are innocent of the charges laid against them by the devouring wolves around them, will be exonerated and rewarded by their Lord. And if this is the case, if this is the promise set before each and every one of us, then have no fear. Don't be discouraged or alarmed by the consequences of the gospel you preach. And even when you are despised or rejected, keep going, endure, persevere, and know that in the end you will be vindicated by the Lord himself. In the end, that gospel you preached will be revealed to everyone as the absolute truth. And Jesus goes on and says, There is nothing hidden that will not be known. All the gossip, all the slanders, all the lies, all the deceptions that have been spoken against the Lord's people in the darkness, all the plans that have been hatched against the Lord's people for the purpose of hindering the progress of the gospel will be made known and the Lord will deal justly with those who rebelled against him and set their faces against both him and his children along with his gospel. So in light of this, Jesus continued in verse 27, 
what I tell you in the dark. Say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. See, armed with the knowledge that Christ experienced and endured malicious treatment at the hands of men, knowing that you and I can expect similar treatment, but that there is coming a day when we will be vindicated by the Lord, Jesus instructed the disciples not to fear anything that the world might throw at us. But instead, continue on in loud, bold, courageous proclamations of the gospel. What Christ taught the twelve during his earthly ministry, make it known to everybody. Speak in the light, meaning out in the open, out in public. Shout it from the rooftops, meaning where everyone can hear. Herald to all the offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And have no fear when you do it. Jesus continued in verse 28 with the third reason to have no fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. See, the Apostle Paul, in his ministry, understood that physical death for the Christian is no great tragedy. It is for those around that Christian who die, but for you and I who love Jesus, the day we die will be no tragedy to us. It is, in fact, the, quite the opposite. It is great gain, according to the Apostle Paul. And even as you live life in this world, you must always remember the truth that the Apostle Paul taught to the Colossians in chapter 3, when he said this, You have died. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, you and I have already died, and if you love Jesus, your life is securely and firmly hidden in Christ, meaning it is beyond the reach of even the worst tyrant this world could ever produce. No matter what this world does to us in the here and now, we are beyond their reach. It's this realization that freed the Apostle Paul to shout the gospel from the rooftops in every city he visited. Because if his life, if our lives are truly hidden with Christ in God, then our earthly demise is simply a shift from here to something better. This is why Paul could say to the Philippian believers in chapter 1, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is far better. Paul ministered among people throughout the Roman Empire, fully aware that a servant is not above his master, fully aware that like they had with his Lord, they might put an end to his earthly life at any moment. But what those who can only kill the body don't understand is that to end the life of a believer only ushers them into the presence of their greatest joy and delight. 
So do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Because in the end, that's the absolute worst thing that anyone in this world can do to you or me. Kill the body. Any supposed power that the world may have over you is limited to the here and the now, and that's it. It's not the world that you must fear. It's not those who can kill your body, but not the soul that you must fear. But there is one legitimate fear that Jesus mentions in verse 28. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is really only one thing to fear. And the Lord made this clear to the prophet Isaiah when he informed him of an oncoming Assyrian invasion. When the ten tribes were about to bring about the downfall, or when the Assyrians were about to bring about the downfall of the ten tribes, God comforted and instructed Isaiah saying this in eight, chapter, chapter 8. Do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall fear. Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You see, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is the only fear that ought to consume our hearts. For the believer in the Lord... Fear of the Lord should so fill your heart that there is no room left to fear anything or anyone else. Now let's pause here for a second and just reflect for a minute. Because the fear of God is absent in any who, because they fear the wrath of people, or because they dread the thought of their physical death so much, they do not hesitate to abandon and even make excuses for their abandonment of confessing the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. How many of us settle for a life with little to no obedience to Christ's call to mission? And even more, how many of us, out of fear for the wolves, make excuses, whatever they might be, to convince ourselves that our disobedience is permissible? See, the world is going to bring to you any excuse it can to make you zip it. The world will say, well, when you speak that way, it's offensive. And what do we do when we hear that word? Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. Not going to say anything anymore. Some will say, well, you sound a little bit too pushy. Oh, oh. I don't want to sound pushy. I don't want to be pushy about the gospel, but have you ever noticed how that's the only thing we don't really want to be pushy about? Have you noticed how we will badger people with our opinions till the cows come home? We will be pushy about our favorite diets or our view about what's going on in the world or our opinions on this and that but we won't be pushy with the gospel. Why is that? That's backwards. If there's going to be something you're pushy about, make it Jesus. The Apostle Paul was a pushy man. Jesus was a pushy man. They went everywhere they could, and they spoke the gospel, and people didn't want to hear it. But guess what they did when the people didn't want to hear it? 
They said it again. And they got in trouble for it. Be pushy with the gospel. Offend with the gospel. It's okay. Don't let the world convince you that these things are not right. Don't buy into some excuse that you have made for yourself as to why it's okay for you not to be on mission. It's just plain disobedience and self-deception. And Jesus here in this text in verse 28 is saying, do not let your fear of people, do not let your fear of what they can do prevail over your fear of God. The eternal state of your soul is to be valued more highly than this fleeting and temporary life. And to value this life more than the next is the very definition of atheism. And this idea was constantly in the, in the minds of the Jews. For example, twice in the book of, books of the histories of the Maccabees, they are very interesting. You should read the histories of the Maccabees. They're not inspired, but they are informative for history because it's from, it's a, these are books that outline the Jewish struggle for independence from the Seleucid Empire, and the events that transpired in this book are the background for the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, which is a feast we see the Jews celebrating in the Gospel of John, for example. In there, we read this. For even if for the present I should be delivered from the vengeance of men... Yet neither while living nor after dying shall I escape the hands of the Almighty. And again, let us not fear him who thinks he is killing us, for great is the struggle of the soul and the danger of eternal torment lying before those who transgress the commandment of God. This was consistent in Jewish thought. I would rather die at the hands of men than disobey my God. And one major Jewish philosopher, a man named Philo, also said, Men reckon the extreme penalty to be death, but the divine court of justice, this is scarcely the beginning. But in the divine court of justice, this is scarcely the beginning. Your death is scarcely the beginning. So this, the idea that being that temporary pains and perils and persecutions in the here and now, while no, they are not pleasant, they are difficult to bear, these pale in comparison with both the blessings that await your obedience and acknowledgement of Christ or the eternal justice that awaits your denial. Consider which is the more fearful prospect right here, right now falling into the hands of your fellow human beings who might take from you pleasures, comforts, reputation, property, money, maybe even your life. Consider how fearful that is. And then weigh that against falling into the hands of God as one who has denied Him. Which hands do you want to fall into? Because the writer of Hebrews makes it clear with these chilling words of warning that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So how does one know then, if they fear the Lord who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell, or man who can only kill the body but not the soul? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 32 and 33. Look at verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
So the idea to acknowledge here means to unapologetically and openly identify with Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Not apologizing for him, not being ashamed of your allegiance to him, but instead publicly, openly professing your love for Christ, obeying Christ in this world, speaking the gospel of Christ to the world. Those who publicly profess Christ, given everything that Jesus has said awaits those who do in this world, all the difficulties, they reveal the primacy of Jesus in their heart. They fear him more than anything. And the promise of Christ to you, if this is you, is that he will publicly acknowledge you and own you as one of his own before his Father in heaven on that day. So whose whose acknowledgement means more to you? The acceptance of humans who are like, the Bible says, are like the grass of the field here today and gone the next? Or the eternal God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, who is eternal in, in power, eternal in nature and divine in power? If it is God's, amen. Profess him openly and look forward to your future rewards no matter what you experience here on earth. But if it is man's, if you're more afraid of man than God, listen to what Jesus said next in verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And to deny here means who will not openly identify with me who will not bear witness to me, who will not acknowledge their allegiance to me before other people, who abandon obedience in this area in favor of self-preservation and fitting in with the world. Are you denying Christ or are you acknowledging him in this world? Do you fear God or do you fear man? You can either be a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which case the world will consider you an enemy, or you can be a friend to the world, in which case you are an enemy of God. This is an either-or proposition. There is no in-between. See what Jesus said to the disciples in John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. And this leads to the reality, as Jesus made clear to the disciples in this same discourse, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you see it. If you obey Christ, you reveal yourself to be his friend, and the friends of Christ are hated by the world. You can be loved by Jesus and hated by the world, or or you can seek to be a friend of the world and an enemy to God, which is what James said in his letter in chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And listen, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here are the options that lie before you. Will you fear God or will you fear men? So have no fear because a servant is not above his master. Have no fear because the Lord will vindicate his obedient children. Have no fear because all mankind can do is kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. Do fear, instead, the God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell being the place of one's final, eternal torment 
where both body and soul experience the wrath of God as the penalty for the sins that have not been forgiven. And finally, have no fear. Look at verse 29 to 32. Have no fear. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The great reformer John Calvin, commenting on this text, text asks the question, Would our God, who is so careful about sparrows, disregard the life of men? And the answer to that question is no. The Lord is well aware of your suffering for his sake. The Lord will deal justly with those who cause it. Not only that, but the Lord who is sovereign over even the smallest details, details as small and seemingly insignificant as the descent and fall of sparrows to the ground, also guides and oversees and directs every step of your life amidst and through all the dangers you will face. And nothing can happen to you except that which the Lord decrees, ordains, or permits. And even though it might not feel like it, because the trials are many and the trials are painful, the Lord loves his children. If you are saved by grace through faith in Christ this day, you are one of his children. And know this, the Lord loves you. He places a high value on you. So fear not. As you live and move and minister and obey in this world and face trials, remember the loving care and kindness of the God in whom your life is hidden, with whom you will one day appear in glory as you go about your life in mission on this earth. In closing, Christian history is filled with courageous people, men and women who took the words of Jesus in this text to heart fearless proclaimers of the gospel, those who paid the ultimate price for their loyalty and their allegiance to Christ. One such man who inspires me is named Hugh Latimer. He was one of the Oxford reformers who faithfully served Christ in the 1500s. And during this period, there were a large number of Roman Catholics who began picking up the scriptures and realizing that all they had learned and all they had taught was error. All they had been taught was in error. And they came to recognize the authority of the scriptures and the beauty of God's saving plan that by faith in Christ, you can and will be saved. And they realized that the scriptures had possessed authority and preeminence over popes and traditions. And a lot of these reformers, a lot of these men, all of these men turned to Jesus and the Reformation kicked off. Hugh Latimer, after his conversion, went throughout England powerfully preaching the word of God. And throughout England, his reputation spread as one faithful to the scriptures and electric in his preaching. And Latimer was called on a few occasions to go before the king to preach. Now, I don't know if you know anything about history, but the king that he was brought before to preach to was a man named Henry VIII. Now, Henry VIII is recorded in history as an erratic, unreasonable, and sometimes violent man towards those who crossed him. It was said that one of the most terrifying places to be in England was uh, a wife of Henry VIII. 
Because he beheaded a number of his wives for various self-centered reasons. If you didn't have a boy, if you irritated him, boom, off with your head. And so Latimer was called before the king to preach. And as he approached the king to preach the word of God, what was he to do? Would he preach and bear witness to this king boldly? Would he preach to this rather unpredictable and unstable man with the power to end his life with a a word or a snap? Would he speak with the clarity of men like John the Baptist, who in a very similar situation denounced King Herod for his wicked deed of taking to himself his brother's wife? Would Latimer speak to Henry with the same clarity as John, who said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. After all, Henry VIII was in much the same situation. He was a man known for his debauchery and his treachery to such a degree that he either divorced or beheaded his wives, like we mentioned. And so Latimer approached Henry VIII with the gift, with a Bible. And he marked a specific passage in that Bible for Henry to take note of. Hebrews 13.4. Hebrews 13.4 reads like this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And upon reading this, Henry flew into a rage. Because Latimer rebuked the king and rebuked the court for his sins. And... King Henry demanded that Latimer retract his reprimands in next Sunday's sermon before all the people. So the time came for Latimer to preach that Sunday. And as the king and the court and everyone gathered to listen, Latimer considered the great responsibility that was set before him. And he recognized that the message he had prepared would not please the king. And so upon approaching the pulpit... It is said that Latimer engaged in an audible self-conversation, saying to himself so that people could hear, Oh, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? Do you remember that this king has the power to command you to be sent to prison or have your head cut off if it so pleases him? Will you not take care to say nothing that might offend his royal ears. And after a brief pause in his self-talk, he continued once again audibly speaking to himself, O Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one before whose throne even Henry must stand, before the one to whom you yourself will one day give an account, Latimer, Latimer, Be faithful to your master and declare the full counsel of God's word. And so Latimer preached with vigor and with gusto and with zeal. And even King Henry, listening to Latimer preach, had to come to the conclusion saying, Blessed be God that I have so honest a servant. Latimer's courage and boldness and faithfulness to God's word didn't occasion his death at this time, however, when Henry died and then his son, Edward IV, died, Mary Tudor took the throne and she is unceremoniously known today as Bloody Mary. She sought Latimer out specifically because of his gospel witness and the progress of the gospel throughout England and she she grabbed him along with another man 
another faithful witness, a man named Nicholas Ridley, and consigned both of them for their gospel preaching to the awful penalty of burning at the stake. And as both were led to the large pile of wood and the stakes upon which they would endure their penalty, Ridley grew upset at the prospect. And Latimer, had Latimer simply recanted, would have been okay. And as Ridley is teetering on the way to the stake, Latimer looked at him and said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall on this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, such as I trust shall never be put out. And they died that day. And if, today, if you walk down Broad Street in Oxford, England, you will see a small square in the middle of a road. In that square, there's a cross. You could miss it if you were just walking around. And it's this, it's, this square is a memorial that marks the location of Ridley and Latimer's execution, where they gave up their lives rather than deny their Lord Jesus Christ. These men feared God more than man. Now, you might not be brought to the stake for execution, but regardless, even if you are, have no fear, fellow servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have no fear because you are following in the footsteps of your most awesome master. Have no fear because you will be vindicated by your Lord in the end. Have no fear because all man can do is kill the body and not the soul. Have no fear because the Lord loves you and highly values your life. Suffer for him if need be. Acknowledge him before men and he will acknowledge you. Think about that. There will come a day when the Lord said, who vouches for this man or this woman? And the Lord Jesus Christ will stand up and himself walk over to you and say, I do. I vouch for this man or this woman. Is there any higher and greater honor than that? Have no fear. Father, we thank you. We praise you and we love you. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and letting us know from the outset the difficulties and the trials that await those who obey the command of our Lord Jesus Christ to go out on mission. And Lord, we receive with gratitude the encouragement of our Lord Jesus Christ to have no fear. But Lord, we are weak and we are prone to fear. It's difficult for us who are not Jesus and who are not perfect and who are prone to wander to avoid being fearful. The only way that we can live and move and have our being in this world as obedient children to you is by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us. Fill us like you've filled your faithful followers throughout history to preach and to proclaim the gospel boldly and without fear. And may you be honored, and may you be glorified, and may you be exalted as we do so. And ever, we pray that you would always remind us of the future day when our Lord Jesus will stand up and vouch for us in your presence. Oh, what a great day that will be. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.